any upside associated with the subdivision is already baked into the value of your capital asset. And you should, as a layperson, you know, someone who's not a developer or a builder, sell it in a clean capital transaction and take your money off the table. And that if you then want to go into the development business or you want to invest in a development, then that should be a separate thought process than necessarily getting sort of caught up in this context that I'm selling, I've got a block of land and rather than just sell it and realize its full potential as a capital asset, I'm going to do something more with it. I'm going to, I'm going to become a property developer or become a builder. And in my experience, the, the value that they ultimately get out of it, they, they probably could have got a very similar economic result if they just sold it into the market because its subdivision potential is already baked into its value before they even get involved in any of that additional activity. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 334 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you are a farmer and you want to subdivide parts or all of your farm, or if you live on a large block of land and want to turn your main residence into two or more dwellings on subdivided titles, how should you do that? When should you do the subdivision or should you subdivide at all? What are the tax implications and when does CGT event K4 apply and when and how do you lose the main residence exemption? These are just some of the questions Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide will cover in this episode. The first question to Andrew is whether on income always means business. And we spend a bit of time on this distinction between capital profit-making schemes and business because it plays an important role in how your subdivision gets taxed. So the first question to Andrew is, does on income always mean business. Business always equals income. On income doesn't necessarily need to equate to a business. So I usually think that there's three buckets. So at one end of the spectrum, you've got capital or sort of mere realizations, very simple transactions. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got businesses, which are ongoing, commercial, repetitive enterprises. And then in the middle bucket, you've got on income. So things that are on income account, but don't, there's something more than sort of a simple mere realization. Uh, they're on income account, but they don't amount to a business. They don't have all the features that, that a business has. Isn't it then that the um, bucket in the middle is profit-making scheme? That's right. Yeah. So it's one of those, it's a, it's a profit-making scheme. And there's really, I, I sort of see two elements to that middle bucket. One is sort of a one-off transaction that you go into with a clear profit-making intention. So you've bought something, whether it you know, be a property or, or something else that you intend right from the beginning that you're going to make a profit out of it, that you're not holding it long-term or it's not part of your business or investment structure. And then the other piece of the middle bucket, the on-income bucket, is things that you've previously held on capital accounts, so nothing to do with the business or it might be just the structure of the business, so it's not sort of a, a revenue-type thing, that you sell in a in an enterprising way. So you've some, you've got something that's capital, it's clearly you know, not on income. And then rather than just selling it as a capital asset, 
you you do something entrepreneurial or enterprising in the way that you sell that asset. And it's the the change in your activities from just holding it passively to doing something active to realize that asset that brings it into the on-income bucket in the middle. And I think the line between capital and business is very clear. You either run a business or you have it on capital, but I can imagine the line between capital and on income is incredibly gray. Historically, there was really just the two buckets. There was the capital bucket and then there was the business bucket. That's what everybody thought up to cases like Meyer Emporium. And prior to that, there was um, an earlier case, I think it was the Californian Copper Syndicate case. Um, so really, you know, the old trust cases that led to the capital and income distinction, when I say trust cases going you know, back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years in England, it was really just two buckets. But what What happened over time is in jurisdictions like Australia where capital was tax-free and business was taxable, there was this middle sort of grey area that was generally sort of just treated as capital, that you were you were realising the capital asset in a, in a smart way to get the highest and best value. And because there was no capital gains tax, it was either taxable or tax-free, the tax office became more aggressive in taking on cases and this gray area to try and squeeze more stuff into the income bucket and away from the tax-free bucket. So, you know, one of the things that I often think about is this, these cases um, were just slightly prior to my time. So that they were relatively new cases when I was studying them at university. And If you look at the timings, if you look at Whitford's Beach, it's 1982. If you look at Meyer Emporium, it's 1987. Um, and a lot of the other cases which really pioneered this middle bucket, they also, they're all around the same time the capital gains tax was introduced, which was 1985. So what you had as a political environment where people were increasingly uncomfortable seeing you know, wealthy people not pay any tax on their capital gains, but sort of dirty business people being paid full tax on their business income, And there was obviously a political environment and a sort of a social environment was such that the High Court was recognising this, this argument by the tax authorities to say, look, there is, there is something more than just merely realising a capital asset here, that, that something more is going on. And if, you know, I've always thought, well, maybe if capital gains tax was introduced earlier, you actually wouldn't have ended up with this middle bucket <laughs> because people wouldn't have seen that sort of unfair grey area where people, you know, arguably weren't paying their fair share of tax. Coming back to this expression on income, when I used it before in the past, I always thought of it also as business. So when I say something is on income, I always thought, yes, either a profit-making scheme or a business. But I now realize that when you say on income, you don't actually mean business, you mean the middle bucket. That's right, yeah. So you can really confuse people if you want because within a business, for example, there is the, the capital infrastructure or, or sort of struct, ongoing structure of the business. For example, if you are a manufacturer, you've got a factory and that factory is held by that business on capital account because it's an enduring long-term asset that's really the scaffolding on which the business operates. And then you have trading stock and consumables and employees and all those sort of things which are generating the revenue, which is on revenue account. So even within a business, you have the income capital distinction. So it can be you know, like, for example, if you really want to confuse people, you can say like a property development business, for example. So you've got 
the office in which the property development takes place, and that's going to be on capital account usually. And then you've got the land that the property developers built, bought, say, for long-term holding, so they're, they're, they're land banking. And then you've got property that has been subdivided, so that might be trading stock. You know, So even within a property business, you can actually have property that's a capital asset and you can have other property that's trading stock and you can have other property that's potentially even on, on revenue account, something less than trading stock. So there was that, I think it's St. Hubbard's Island case, which talked about whether unsubdivided land could be could constitute trading stock. So yeah, within, within the property business, you can have property that's on capital account, you can have property that's trading stock and potentially property that's on income account, which is potentially, you know, it's like unsubdivided property or property that's being land banked, for example. So it probably doesn't make much of a difference, the distinction between whether it's trading stock and whether it's a sort of a revenue asset or a land bank, but because, you know, you're going to be paying tax on it as business profits anyway. But, you know, this income capital distinction is is probably one of the hardest things that you learn as a, as a tax accountant or a tax lawyer. Um, it's one of the first things you get taught in university when you when you do subjects. And really, it's a very arbitrary distinction. You know, it's um, the historical distinction arose out of really the fact that, you know, the kings and of England and um, queens didn't want to tax the noble people in their court because that would potentially overthrow them. So they, the wealthy, rich people would basically not pay tax, but the, the merchants and the, the farmers would have to pay a portion of their, their annual production to the king to, to fund the public purse. So that's really where this distinction came from. And it's, it's really a political distinction rather than a philosophical economic one. So today when we try and work out where that line is between capital and income, you know, almost everybody struggles with it, including the tax office. So, you know, there's there's many rulings and cases which appear arbitrary and inconsistent on the same fact set, you'll get a different outcome. So um, it can be it can be pretty tricky. So within a business, so let's say within a company, you have capital assets, and this sounds very basic now, the usual depreciation rules apply to this capital asset within a business. So you have 2.5% on um, on the building and then the um, uh, tools, etc. are depreciated based on the commissioner's effective rates. I was surprised that you said that land banking is... Land banking is on revenue. For, for a business, for a property developer, it's going to be on revenue account because, and, and as I say, the distinction between revenue and revenue asset and trading stock is really a very fine one in the context of a business because when it's sold, you're going to pay the same similar amount of tax on on the gain or the, the surplus or the profit. But So would you put land banking into trading stock? I, my, I have seen people do both. I think that the general view is that it would just be held as an asset on the balance sheet. Trading stock, there was that Hubbard's Island case, I think, which talked about whether or not undivided land could be trading stock because it wasn't in a in a state that was ready to be sold. It, you know, it couldn't be sold as a... The, the idea was that when you buy a big broad acre farm, for example, as a property developer, you take an option over it or whatever, uh, you don't intend to sell it in an unsubdivided state and one. So it's actually not held by you in a state that's ready to be realized or it's or in this in the form that you consider it to be realized so it's sort of like a an input in, into what you're producing which is subdivided lots but my, you know I, I think it's probably a little bit of a, bit of a theoretical distinction land that is being held that is not unsubdivided land 
is not trading stock because it's not ready to be sold. But what does it mean when it's held on revenue? What do, what exactly does that mean? So it just sits as an asset on the balance sheet. How can that be on revenue? Well, because it was bought with the clear intention that it would be sold. So, okay. you know, it's not going to be a capital. Okay, so it doesn't get depreciated, basically. Correct. Okay. And it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not part of the infrastructure of the business. It's actually part of what the business is about. It's like it's it's the focus of the business. It's not the structure through which the business operates. So we have capital assets that get depreciated. Then we have assets that are on revenue, especially land banking, and they don't get depreciated, but they're also not part of trading stock. So they just sit there until they move into trading stock. And then we have the trading stock that you tax deduct during the year, basically, and then gets added back in the form of inventory, I think, you know, it's division division 70 of the ITAA 97. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Good. And look, it's, you know, it's the outcome, it's not really a different outcome from a profit perspective. And I do know that some some people would put all of their land as trading stock, even if it wasn't subdivided. But, you know, my view is it's not in a, it's not in a state. It's not, um, it's not the sort of thing I would claim a full deduction for if I spent $40 million on a, on a you know, on broad acres before it had been, um, subdivided, but it's but you know I guess a very large property developer may do that. I yes. think it's just really a fine cap- accounting distinction that I'm probably not yes. super qualified yes. to, to to opine on. But the main thing is basically if you treat it on revenue and you don't treat it as trading stock, then it doesn't go in in the tax return. And then also in your tax return, it doesn't go through your trading stock lines. You know how in the tax return you have these lines of purchased inventory and then sold inventory, et cetera. So you don't have those 40 million going going through there at the moment. That's right. Going through as a massive deduction and then showing at an end value for trading stock, which is massively high, which then reduces that deduction. So you know you how you, you know how the trading stock works, yes. that you're basically only deducting or or showing a, a profit on the, the movements in in the, sort of the net movement between what you've purchased and what you've sold and what you have on hand at the end of the year. And it probably is better not to have these massive movements going through the trading stock while you're holding the land because these mass, massive movements probably just pick the interest of the ATO anyway. And the less boring we look, the better. Yeah, I don't think that's our profit. This is once again, you know, a lawyer giving a view on accounting, but I don't think it shows a proper reflection of the of the activities of the taxpayer, if you like, you know, it's not, it's not really, it's not, it's not trying to be sold that year. It's not, it's not on hand ready to be sold. So it's a very good point because so far I've kind of always argued on capital or on income. And I kind of always assumed that on income meant business and that business meant income. And of course, it's, it's a very good point to say that not all of business is actually on, on income. You know, business can also have capital. Yeah. So, so not all income is a business and not, everything to do with the business is on income. So, you know, that's a that's a really important. And if you think about like farmers, for example, they own the land as a capital asset and they the income, you know, the trading stock and the income is things like the, the annual crop or sheep or whatever it might be. So, you know, that's a classic example of where this capital income distinction is so critically important because when the farmer comes to sell the land, the ordinary position is that they're selling a capital asset. So they're in, they're in the mere realization bucket. So, you know, this is sort of like, it's like making, I mean, it's like um, when you're sort of kneading dough and it goes over and over itself. So if you say, we've got a business that's the farm business, and then within that business, we've got a capital asset that's the farm and we've got revenue assets that's sheep and you know, all that sort of stuff. And then at the end of that process, let's say we want to sell the farm, we're then into the sale of a capital asset by the farmer. And that the farmer can then do one of three things with that. 
they can merely realize the capital asset, in which case it's going to be on capital account. And if they bought it prior to 85, it's going to be tax-free. Or if they're a small business, they might get small business concessions. And if they're an appropriately qualifying taxpayer for Division 115, they'll get... 50% CGT discount. Yep. So then what the farmer could do is rather than just sell the farm, they might have been told by the local council that they can rezoned it to rural living and they can chop the farm up into some big blocks and you know by applying to do the rezoning and stuff like that so the next question is is the farmer doing something more than mere realization when they start to do the application process for rezoning and and then they might take on a project manager and then they might even go to putting in roads or fencing off blocks or whatever it is so at what point does the farmer do something more than merely realise the farm, but actually starts to venture the farm into something in the nature of an of a income-producing activity or something in the nature of trade, which would bring them from the capital bucket into the middle bucket, which is, which is the on-income account. And that the farmer could go even further because if they have a lot of land, they can actually become in the business of selling land. And when the farm is chopped up into smaller blocks, that could actually become trading stock. So we've started with a business and we've, which has got a capital asset and revenue assets. We've stopped the business and taken the capital asset of the business and then we've taken that capital asset from mere realisation all the way through to a completely different business. So you can see why this becomes an incredibly confusing area for people. So for a farmer to subdivide is actually very dangerous because if they subdivide, at the moment the entire land is is on capital and hence the entire land uh, might qualify for the small business CGT concessions. If they now subdivide, does the entire land loses its status as a capital asset or does just the subdivided land lose its title as a capital asset? Because that, of course, will trigger then to what extent the small business CGT concessions still apply to what part of land. Yes. So that's the that's the critical question. And then there's cases, I think it's, it's Cassidy's and a couple of other ones, uh, Casamati, Statham and a few other, and there's a lot of rulings on this area where there's been rulings in cases where, you know, anything up to sort of 50 to 100 acres divided into you know, 20, 50 lots, et cetera, has been held to be just a mere realisation. In other words, remaining on capital, not amounting to an income profit-making activity or a business. And then there's been, you know, relatively small subdivisions where the tax office has held and the tribunals have held that um, selling it by way of subdivision amounted to something more than just a mere sale that actually amounted to a, a profit-making activity. And would that profit-making activity then just apply to the uh, parcel that is subdivided, you know, that is basically cut off and sold? If the farm continues and the farmer just subdivides a small parcel of land to sell off to pay for the next crop, then it would only be the subdivided land that is moving on to income? Yeah, so where this gets interesting is people like farmers who sell down land over a period of time. So they might get subdivision potential for a part of their property that's close to a town or something like that. And, or they might be wanting to, it's just such a lot of money that they, you know, a lot of farmers who are close to cities, capital cities will be sitting on quite a, a large, you know, massive value and they'll, they'll want to sell down over time. So one of the problems with selling down over time is that it can be seen as a repetitive activity, which can, which can bring, it's one of the factors that, that is looked at to see whether or not you're doing something more than merely realising. So I think your question to me is, 
does the income producing activity or the business amount to just uh, applied it as part of the land that's subdivided off or does it change the nature of the whole land so the, the short answer is it applies to what's being sold or what's being ventured into the nature into the trade so an easy example would say to be you've got a farm and you've half the farm gets rezoned and the other half remains as the farm then you would say in the middle bucket you'd say how much of the farm or the land is being ventured into the into the trade into the realization which would be the bit that's being subdivided off so that would clearly be on revenue account then uh, you know the balance of the farm would still be a capital asset because it's being retained in that that particular form the key question really for when you change the nature of an asset from a capital asset to something more than a capital asset so whether it moves into the middle bucket or the business bucket is what does it become and what what's the tax consequence at the time of the change so let's just keep with the example of half the farm being subdivided and the other half being kept as a farm so if the subdivided bit of the farm only amounts to a a profit making scheme or or a um uh, something more than a mere realization so it goes on to the gain becomes a revenue gain you don't pay tax on all of the value of the subdivided piece of the of the farm you get a basically part of it remain like the value of the farm at that point gets treated as as sort of an input which is on capital account if you like and it's the it's what you make it's the it's the gain that you make from the from the venture from venturing that asset that's on revenue account so you know, you still may have a component of of capital associated with that, and but what's clearer is the third option, which is let's say that that half of the farm that you're subdividing up and selling off amounts to a business. So you've really gone to this full full on, right? Then what happens is that you'll trigger. Because then K4. you have CGT K four. Yeah, you have CGT K four at the time that you venture the land, not when the land's ultimately sold. But at the time you change the use of the land from the mere capital asset into trading stock. And so you've got a capital gain at that time. And then, you, then thereafter, the entire value of the land is, is trading stock and held in the normal trading stock rules. And I personally find that easier to understand and to apply in practice because, you know, if you're claiming the small business concessions or you're, you're claiming you know, pre-CGDs, CGT status of the land, then it's quite clear at that point in time that you decide that you're you're changing how you're the purpose which you're holding that land. You can do all your CGT stuff and bring all that to account, and then you then take the 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 current market value of the land into into trading stock. That's easier than the middle bucket where you haven't actually triggered any capital consequences for the land at the time that you venture the land into the into the sort of enterprise or profit-making scheme. Profit scheme. Yeah. So that's a lot more difficult. And I've always struggled the tax office rulings and the tax office practice. And I think it's based on Whitford's Beach um, the case that the sort of the value of the land that you've ventured, if you like, is an <laughs> input cost into that profit-making scheme. So, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more complex transaction to, to, to get your head around. Can we apply CGT concessions? At that time? Yes, you can. Yep. So you can claim the small business CGT concessions when you change from capital to K and you have a K4? Okay. But then that means you can also claim the main residence exemption then at that stage. You can, but you'd have to have a very big house. <laughs> so I haven't seen any instances really where 
houses are big enough that when you subdivide them, you get you actually enter into a business of subdivision and sale. So what happens with property, the reason why I don't think K4 is triggered for sort of small scale subdivisions and sales like your backyard and whatever is that if you slice off your tennis court and sell it to somebody, the tennis court doesn't become trading stock after the subdivision and before the sale. It's in the middle bucket. It's in the non-business bucket. So, so you don't get the benefit of K4. And the other reason you don't get the main residence exemption, which is even more fundamental than this, is that a lot of people don't understand that the main residence exemption is an exemption for the dwelling and the land under the dwelling and the land adjacent to the dwelling, provided that the capital gains event that's triggered is triggered in the same transaction as the dwelling is disposed of. So what that means is if you've got a house and a tennis court, and you subdivide the tennis court and sell the tennis court, you haven't, there is no CGT event with respect to the dwelling. The dwelling is the, is the walls and the roof. So there's a definition of what a dwelling is. And there's no CGT event with respect to the land under the dwelling. And so the CGT event on the adjacent land um, doesn't take, it, it isn't part of the same transaction whereby there is a CGT event with respect to the dwelling. So you'll never get the main residence exemption when you cut off a piece of land from your main residence. And that's the reason why. Whether or not K4 is triggered on that doesn't really, there's a lot of different ways people do this. So let's, let's go through a few of them. The first, the, the most common or the easy one is you've got a, a house and a tennis court and you subdivide the property into two titles, one that's got the house on it, one that's got the tennis court, and then you sell the tennis court. Okay, that's, that's the first scenario that we could talk about. So there's been no destruction of the dwelling. The dwelling is still sitting there. And you still own the dwelling, but you've you've had when there's a subdivision takes place, there's no CGT event. So that's a, there's not even a rollover. It's just when you split the CGT asset and you retain ownership of the split assets, there's no CGT event. So that's, that's a principle of CGT. So we've gone from one one CGT asset to two CGT assets with no event. And then when we sell the tennis court, there is no CGT transaction with respect to the dwelling, which can enliven the main residence exemption because the tennis court never had a dwelling on it and there was no disposal of the dwelling. So that's, we don't get it there. So that's sort of scenario one. The next scenario is we have a house uh, with a tennis court and we demolish the house. We subdivide the block into two pieces of land um, and then we sell either one or both bits of land. Once again, there's no dwelling because we've, we've knocked the dwelling over. <laughs> so, so we're not going to get the main residence exemption there. So what you're better off doing is either subdividing or not subdividing, but let's say we subdivide the dwelling and the tennis court, and then we sell the dwelling and the tennis court to a developer. We would get the main residence on both because if the, con the contract has to have both titles in the one contract. And because we've sold all of the property, the two titles in a single transaction. And that transaction involved a CGT transaction with respect to the dwelling bit, which is the walls and the land immediately under the walls. Then we will actually get the main resident exception on both titles because we've sold them in the one transaction. The other thing we could do is we could split the block into the dwelling and the tennis court, and we could sell the dwelling and keep the tennis court. And we would actually get the main residence exemption on the sale of the dwelling, the title with the house on it, because 
we've we've had a transaction that involved the sale of the the house and 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 the land associated with the house. That then leaves us with the tennis court, and if we if we then sold the tennis court separately, we would get no main residence exemption. But if we then built a new house on the tennis court, then we could potentially get the main residence exemption, but we would only get it for the period on which the new house was on that tennis court. So if we owned the original house for five years, subdivided, sold the original house, built a new house on the tennis court, owned that for five years, we would get half the main residence exemption when we sold the second house, the new house. So it's one of those things that gets people really angry um, <laughs> when they hive their tennis court off and their accountant tells them that they're not going to get the exemption. Whereas if they'd sold the whole thing or if they'd subdivided and sold the whole thing or whether they'd subdivided it and sold the house, they, they would have got at least some exemption. So, Yeah, and that's a major thing. A tennis court close to Sydney or Melbourne, that would easily be two or three million, let's say four million. And then let's say you bought it for 200,000 in 1990 or so. You're basically looking at a capital gain of four million Even if you don't get the main residence exemption, you would still get the 50% CGT discount, correct? You will, correct, yeah. And you'd even get that after the subdivision because it's considered the acquisition time of the subdivided blocks is the original acquisition date for the original house. So, yes, you you will invariably get the, the 50% discount if you've held it for more than 12 months. But still, if you say the capital gain is $4 million, so if we do this smartly, we walk away with $4 million tax free. If we do this incorrectly and we demolish the house or we subdivide and then just sell the tennis court, etc., then we can apply the uh, 50% CGT concession. So that reduces the capital gain from $4 million to $2 million. And if our marginal tax rate is 47%, so roughly 50%, then it means we get hit with $1 million of tax on this. So this is a very, very expensive mistake to make. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay, so this is the subdivision of a main block with respect to the main residence exemption. And then coming back to CGT event K4, that only applies to business because the thing needs to go to a trading stock. And you are saying, yeah? It doesn't only apply to businesses. What it what it applies to is when you take an something that's a capital asset and you use it in a an activity that amounts to a business. So a, a profit-making scheme, if you like, or a, you know, a, an enterprising realization or whatever, so something which is in the middle bucket, you may just do once. You, know, you might just do one sub subdivision or you might not have all the other bits and pieces that you would normally have in the context of the business. So um, you know, K4 is not going to apply there. But particularly in relation to farms, it can be at such scale and it can be over a period of time and it can involve employing people and buying tractors to do earthworks and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it might happen over, over years such that it, it does amount to a business, being a business of property development. So you've gone from being a farmer to, to a property developer and it's at the time that, that you're the purpose for which you're holding that land changes from farming to property development that you would trigger K4. So that's because the, the nature of the development activities with the land is just so involved that it amounts to carrying on a business. And I, I guess the reason why I don't think K4 is usually relevant to a house type scale thing is that 
you know, even if you divide your house into four blocks, it may be seen as a, a profit-making scheme, but it's, I would say, unlikely to be seen as a business hmm. just because it's just not, you're just not going to have all the factors that, you know, you would look to for a business. If you look at the sort of factors that the tax office talks about in, in a couple of their rulings, you know, which gets you from mere realisation on capital account to profit-making schemes, things like, you know, your change in purpose, which the land's held, you know, whether you've acquired additional land, whether you've, you know, engaged people to help you out, et cetera, that sort of stuff. That doesn't necessarily add up to carrying on a business. You need to have the business organisation and you need to have the repetitiveness and all those sort of those sort of things that, that amounts to business. And that where that comes up is often in the GST rulings where there's a lot of discussion around an enterprise, which is the which is the concept for GST purposes. So you need to be registered if you um, meet certain thresholds and you're carrying on an enterprise. But enterprise is defined more broadly than a business. So um, the tax offices, I think it's MT 2006-1 or thereabouts, that talks about you know when you can have an enterprise that's less than a business. And so that you, you have to register for GST at an earlier point in time or in relation to transactions that don't amount to a business. So I think everybody's quite clear and, and it's a well-established principle that enterprises and, and, and businesses are, are distinct. So the farmer that stops farming and subdivides its entire farm, moves the entire farm into trading stock, mm -hmm. it triggers K4, can claim the small business CGT concessions and so probably pays, hopefully if he does this well, pays zero tax on any of the capital gain and then runs basically a business of subdivision and then probably has to register for GST, etc. But at least he walked away most likely locking in the gain. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Locked in the gain tax free. And what, what yeah. he should do at that point is, you know, we encourage clients to pass a resolution or minutes about the change of intention. They should get a, a an independent market value of the property at that point, so that they can establish the the full market value of the of the pro of the property at the time that it moves from capital account onto revenue account, which trading stock, so that it's well documented that you don't have to go back in three or four years time and argue about what was the value of the farm prior to it you know, being divided and you know did you really charge your intention in May or August or that sort of stuff. So you know you have to be quite deliberate about making that choice to, to, to change the nature of the asset. So this was going from a capital to a business, and it looks quite good because we have a K4 that allows us to, to lock in the game. The problem is if we don't subdivide the entire farm, but we just subdivide one piece of land, you already elaborated on that, that that is very problematic. And one part of the problem is that we don't get K4, And uh, the other part of the problem is that sub subdivision is not a CGT event. So it's not a CGT event when we move something from capital to profit-making scheme, correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct, yep. yep. But my understanding, and it, it appears that it's consistent with the rulings and also the way the gain was calculated in Whitford's Beach, is that the profit, make, the profit on the profit-making scheme takes into account the fact that the asset moved from a capital asset to a revenue asset um, at a particular point in time. So when you're calculating the profit, let's say you bought the farm for a thousand, you venture it into, into the realization when it's worth say 5,000 and then you sell it for 10,000. You bought it for a thousand, you 
it's worth 5,000 when you venture it into the nature of trade and it's and you sell it for 10,000. So the profit-making scheme has really generated $5,000 of profit being the difference between the value of the land when you started the scheme and, and the 10,000 that you ultimately sold it for. The, the gain, the capital profit, if you like, is the difference between the original $1,000 and the $5,000 value at the time you attributed it, you, you, you ventured it into the, into the trade. And I think the way the calculations work is that you have a capital gain equal to 10,000 minus 100, and you have a revenue gain difference between 10,000 and 5,000. And then the anti-overlap provisions mean that the 5,000 is treated as income and the 4,000 balance is treated as, as a gain. So, and the gain doesn't arise at the time of venturing in the nature of trade, it arises under the normal rules, which is when you enter into the contract to sell the property. And just to be super complicated, the gain actually only arises on settlement when you dispose of the property. <laughs> so you've got multiple timing things going on throughout that particular transaction, which, which um, it's easier when it's a pre-CGT asset where a lot of the cases and rulings are focused in because what they, what they effectively say is, you're still selling a pre-CGT asset when you sell it for 10,000. It's just that 5,000 of it is now a profit because you ventured the land into the profit-making scheme when when the land was worth 5,000. So you've made a $5,000 profit between five and 10. So you would just return the $5,000 profit. So if it's post-CGT and you buy it for 1,000, you move it to the profit-making scheme and it's 5,000 and then you sell it for 10,000, then at least you get the uh, $4,000 still on capital. So at least you can still claim the 50% CGT discount and you probably can also claim the small business CGT concessions. Although that is more difficult because you might not have stopped farming by then. If you just subdivide one small piece of land, then you need to look at the conditions because you haven't retired, etc. But you might still you might still qualify for some of the small business CGT concessions, even if it's not the 15-year one. Correct. Yeah. So the questions are around whether it's an active asset and that active asset test requires half the ownership period by which when you own the asset in the course of carrying on the business. So like if you'd own the if you'd own the property for 20 years and and then you spent three years subdividing it, you'd you'd be okay because more than half of your ownership period has been as an active asset in the farm. Um, it's just when you buy something, you know, relatively re you know, recently and then you venture it in the nature of trade. So you buy it as a capital asset in your business and then you know the council turns around and rezones it, you know, it might be a factor or something like that then you may not satisfy the, the, the active asset test, which would, which would be a problem because the development, the period for which you held the land, not as an active asset, in other words, as a... Subdivided not, 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 yeah, property yeah, development. Yeah. Yeah. You, won't, you won't satisfy the active asset test. So um, it, can be, it can be a bit tricky. And I think what, get people, what gets people into trouble is that they don't, they don't do the, the legal analysis around when all these things are happening. So the CGT rules say that, you trigger a gain when you enter into a contract, even if it's a conditional contract. GST says that you pay GST on settlement. Profit-making scheme and trading stock is what's on, it's on sale, on settlement. So, you know, there's different timings that happen and then there's different valuations. And, you know, it's, it's something that you need to 
give some serious thought to <laughs> from, yes. The, yes. from the beginning to the end of the transaction. But so to come back to these $4,000 of capital gain we make when we move to the profit-making scheme, the active asset test is most likely not an issue for the average piece of farmland that has been in the family for a long time. Possibly the in connection with your retirement is a problem when you just subdivide some part of your farmland, but you know, you need to look at the details. And then the other $5,000. So if it was $5,000 when it moved into the profit making scheme and then we sell it for $10,000, that $5,000 is on income. What does this profit making scheme, I have to admit, I've never come across a profit making scheme. It has always been business. Can you claim deductions for profit-making scheme? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So basically everything is the same as if you were running a business. The only difference is that some certain rulings that only apply to business don't apply to a profit-making scheme. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And you don't and, get into the trading stock provisions. Yeah. But they are basically just a theory. They are just, yeah, exactly. They're just a way of accounting for stuff. Yeah. So that just means that these $5,000 then hit the um, tax return without any buffer. Without any CGT discount, it just you just get the full five thousand into your tax return upon the date of settlement. And of course, the you know the tax office will be arguing that a lot of the value, if not majority of the value, is attributable to the profit making element of the scheme. In other words, the way the land's realised, and the taxpayer will be arguing, look, that all of that, all of that profit, all that upside was baked into the capital value of the asset before we did anything with it because. That's just how the world works, you know, that basically we don't make any profit because the, co the extra cost of us actually doing the subdivision is the return. You know? So, which is what I often say to clients when they come to me, they say, oh, I can stay, I've been approached by a developer and, you know, they want me to enter into a joint venture with them to realize the, the farm or the factory or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I'm going to share in the profit and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's going to take, two or three years and all this sort of thing and look at look at these big numbers and and my usual recommendation to them is a you're going to complicate your tax you know to a massive extent and secondly if you just put the property on the open market and sold it and you had a competitive bid between a couple of developers you're going to get basically all the upside you're really going to get because your gain is already baked into your to the property the fact that it's come within its owning you know, rezoning potential area and all that sort of stuff. And the property developers are professionals. They understand how to get things redeveloped. They understand how to get it rezoned. They understand, you know, how to contract with people to do curbs and build roads and stuff. You just going along for the ride in a, in a joint venture is really just providing funding. And you'd be better off just selling it, you know, or even providing vendor finance rather than get all caught up in this whole, you know, think that you're a property developer because there's usually not a lot more upside in, in going through that whole process with a developer alongside them than just selling it to them outright at the beginning. Whether you're in a profit-making scheme or a business, it doesn't really make any difference apart from K4. And even that doesn't really matter because you still get your small CGT concessions anyway, even if you're just a profit-making scheme. Yep. Yeah, and so you know, provided you can qualify for all the tests in that period where you've got this change of it's stopped being a farm asset or a factory and it's become something that's being ventured into a a property development transaction yeah just a little bit more complicated but yeah uh, theoretically it could be exactly the same outcome the only scenario basically where we have a massive issue is the uh, um, subdivision of a main residence exactly when we lose the main residence exemption and that of course can cost us a lot of money 
So that's really the only time when... And that's the one that gets everybody upset. So why do people do these joint ventures with builders when it actually means that they lose their main residence exemption upon the subdivision? They're just not aware of what the consequences are until later. You know, it comes time to do their tax return. Yeah. So it sounds all very good at the start. The builder says, just let me build it. You don't have to pay any money. And in the end, you just give me the second house. And then two years later, or a year later, they do their tax return. And then, and of course, it only becomes an issue when the second house gets sold. And then suddenly there is a massive capital gain to be to pay tax on. Yeah. So that's another thing that we see a lot in property development is the, you know, I'm probably going to use the word loosely, which is skewing, which means things like, I think in one of your examples from your listeners, they said, you know, we're going to subdivide the house and I'm going to give one, we're going to subdivide the block, knock over the existing house, build two new lovely houses, and the property developer is going to take one of them in as payment basically for building and doing the whole thing. And I, so I, I basically end up with a smaller block of land and a lovely new house and it costs me nothing. The problem with that is that the um, the house you get to keep, yes, it still remains subject to the main residence exemption because it's basically a replacement dwelling for the dwelling that's been knocked over so that you get two years in which you can do that effectively roll over. So that's all good. So your block that you keep is still subject to the main residence exemption over the whole ownership period. You've got a nice new house and everything. But, but the problem is that you'll be paying tax full tax on the one that the property developer takes because as we've said before that's been that's not there's no transaction associated with your original dwelling or the dwelling that you've got as your main residence this is this is the tennis court but it's just got a new house on it so the full value of the tennis court and the new house which is given to the developer will be a gain to the homeowner so they will have to pay tax on that and the developer will need to pay tax on the full value of the house and land that they receive for their for their building and developing activities just like they would if they were paid cash so that's another thing where we see sort of smaller scale developers or builders that become developers who do this sort of thing we're talking about they they sort of think that they only have to pay tax if they sell the house that they've received or the one that they've got to keep but that's not the case because it's non-cash remuneration if it's a non-cash business benefit or non-cash remuneration for the developer, so they're taxable on that immediately. And then the, the homeowner got a massive gain on the one that's been sold with no main residence exemption. So it's not a good, it's not really a good result for anybody. Looking at the subdivision of land, if you are a farmer subdividing your land, it should be relatively straightforward. There's a question of to what extent you qualify for the small business CGT concession, but that's always a question. That's never a straightforward answer. But if you are a homeowner and you're looking at subdividing your land, then you're treading on very dangerous land and you really have to think this through because you most likely will lose part of your main residence exemption and that can cost you a lot of money. Yes. Yep. I think from the from the landowner's perspective, you know, we get a lot of clients come to us with land and they're being, they're approached to do something more interesting than just sell it. And I always caution them and say, chances are any upside associated with the subdivision is already baked into the value of your capital asset. And you should as a layperson, you know, someone who's not a developer or a builder, sell it in a clean capital transaction and take your money off the table. Um, and that if you then want to go into the development business or you want to invest in a development, then that should be a separate 
uh, thought process than necessarily getting sort of caught up in this context that, you know, I'm selling, I've got a block of land and rather than just sell it and realize it's full potential as a capital asset, I'm going to do something more with it. I'm going to, I'm going to become a property developer or become a builder. And in my experience, the, the value that they ultimately get out of it, they, they probably could have got a very similar economic result if they just sold it into the market because its subdivision potential um, is already baked into its value before they even get involved in any of that additional activity. I don't want to be someone who's always telling people not to do things, but you know, I think you've got to stand back and ask yourself, uh, you know, what am, what am I really getting in addition or what am I really adding to the property development activity that I couldn't just do by selling it? And that applies to farmers and homeowners and uh, factory owners and that sort of stuff. Welcome back. So if you want to sell the whole land, be it a farm or main residence, then just sell the whole land, don't subdivide. But if you want to keep part of the farm or main residence, then yes, of course, you need to subdivide. Watch out for CGT event K4 if it is a business asset and watch out that you don't lose the main residence exemption if it is a main residence. And if you are invited to take part in the development of the land you sell, in most cases, don't bother unless you are an experienced developer. Taking part in the development probably won't make you any more money than if you had just clean out sold the land. If you want to get into development, then do it separately from the sale of the land in a separate project from the land you sell. In the next episode, episode 335, let's start our mini-series of five episodes about cryptocurrency. And the first episode next week will be with Adam O'Grady, Assistant Commissioner of the ATO. Adam will cover the taxation of cryptocurrency. Tomorrow, in US Update 15, let's talk with Gary Carter about the US taxation of US-sourced income derived by Australian companies selling products into the US. And let's drill into the relevant sections in the Internal Revenue Code. So rather than just being told what the rules say in general, Let's look at the actual law, word for word, so it will get very nerdy. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.